0: Hello I'm Cole Peterson based out of Portland, Oregon. I'm author of Backdoor Revolution and host of the ADU Hour, a podcast where we probe deep into ADUs and other small alternative infill housing. Expansive and deep thinking about small infill housing is our jam. You can sign up for information and announcements from my email newsletter at buildinganadu.com.
1: And I'm Kelsey King, a real estate agent and ADU specialist based in Bellingham, Washington. We host the ADU Hour live on Zoom cool interviews, experts in the ADU space, and then we take some questions from our live audience. Michael Anderson writes about housing and transportation policy as a senior researcher for Sightline Institute, the Pacific Northwest's sustainability think tank. He lives with his family in Portland, Oregon, where he is also active as a volunteer and co-founder of the grassroots advocacy group, Portland Neighbors Welcome. From 2016 to 2020, his family lived in an 800 square foot ADU. He currently lives in a 1,000-square-foot triplex unit in a 23-home cohousing community. Cole, what are some of your thoughts on this interview with Michael?
0: Michael is a very thoughtful writer and researcher about up-and-coming issues of middle housing. There's unfortunately not that many journalists who are focused on housing and residential zoning, so I'm happy to have a connection with Michael. While I diligently read his material on Silent Institute's website, I also find that it's helpful to be able to ask him questions that are of specific interest to me, dealing with ADUs, of course. I find his responses to questions about political alignments with state-level legislation to be of particular value. Kelsey, what were some of your takeaways?
1: Michael's interest in housing with a tilt from the transportation perspective is deeply in alignment with how I relate to housing development and urbanization. He also brings up a very important point that no one coalition is capable of focusing on creating a solution to our housing woes. It's really important to remember that coalitions supporting each other will have a greater impact. Let's get to our interview with Michael.
0: So
2: much. Thanks
0: for the invitation. I'm just going to start by having you say a few words about yourself that are not covered by your bio that you would like for people to know about you have done a lot of things over the years that are, are relevant to the questions we'll be talking about today. So provide a little context for things uh, about you that we should know.
2: Sure. I, I became obsessed with housing policy and transportation sort of in tandem when I was a reporter in suburban Portland covering Clark County, Washington. I was covering county government and like two parts of county government are covering poor people who are interacting with the criminal justice system and covering rich people who are building new homes or even middle-class people who are building new homes on the fringe of the urban landscape. And I was seeing all these poor people being screwed by the fact that they were being forced to live in places without, were not designed for people without cars. And then they would own a car, but it would be a crappy car. And then their car would fall apart. And then their life would fall apart. And I was like, there's gotta be a better solution. Meanwhile, I was spending time with all my 20 something friends in Portland who didn't have cars and they didn't care. Like, And so I was, it's not as simple a story as that, like there's a lot of privilege involved both ways, but that was sort of what got me thinking about transportation and housing. So since I've been working on public transportation, journalism, and biking journalism, and since more recently, housing advocacy on the sort of doing content in various ways. So tell us
0: a little bit about your own family's experience living in an ADU at some point.
2: Yeah, it started with just trying to Let's continue to live with our housemates. So I was interested in living with housemates when I started a little business 10 years ago, because I knew I was going to be socially isolated otherwise. And uh, I needed to save money and worked in both dimensions. And we wanted, then my wife moved in, and then our housemates had a kid. And then we were going to have a kid. We were like, this is too much for this 1942 building. And we we're going to have to figure out some way to do it. And we decided that the best way f- was for us to keep them whole while they built an ADU. And so we lived as tenants for several years and it was great. It was a perfect setup for both of our kids to grow up together as best friends. And the and they had to move for a job recently. So we've relocated since, but it was a really rewarding thing.
0: All right. So you have some direct personal experience with ADUs in particular, and we're going to talk about ADUs for sure, but we're also going to focus on this broader conversation of middle housing today. So let's start off with talking about Sightline Institute first. Tell us a little bit about what Sightline Institute is and
2: what's the mission of Sightline Institute? How would you describe it to other people for those who are not familiar with it? Sure. We're a sustainability think tank founded in 1993, based in Seattle, but covering the Pacific Northwest. So my my boss's big idea is that you can't get people to care about their planet. The evidence seems to suggest, but maybe you can get people to care about their ecosystem. And so we focus on the Pacific Northwest as an ecosystem across the border of states and nations and write about the ways that we can make it the best, most welcoming, most sustainable version of itself as a model to other ecosystems.
0: Is there any other examples of similar silent Institute types of think tanks out there in other regions or comparable institutions that you can
2: think of in the United States? We're definitely weird, but Rocky Mountain Institute is a little bit similar. They're a lot bigger now, founded in Colorado, I think. And there's my, my colleague Eric is trying to, working on creating one for Appalachia, actually. So there may be more. Cool. All right. So how, tell us about the scope of the material
0: that you cover for the Silent Institute.
2: I write mostly about housing, a little bit about transportation and the overlap, which is parking, which I love talking about parking, in the Portland and Oregon areas. So mostly focusing on the statewide level and regional level and what we can do there, but also a little bit of Portland stuff to the extent that it's like a model for other cities.
0: And how does the material that you cover for Sideline Institute fit into the Institute's larger mission?
2: I think one of our niches is that we are a sort of environmental organization that is really into economics and harnessing the power and insights of economics for our progressive sustainability sort of vision and one of our insights or one of our decisions or perspective is that we desperately need to reduce the need for energy over the long term without making it feel like we're giving anything up and the way to do that is to allow urbanization but we've banned urbanization because of zoning laws that make it impossible for people to basically choose where they want to live which is good for lots of reasons so we try to work to undo that while also not being blind to the other complications that it creates for disruption and so on. You previously wrote for a bike blog, local
0: bike blog that's quite beloved and quite popular called Bike Portland. Um, can you talk about the material that you wrote for Bike Portland and how it relates to what you cover now at the Sightland Institute?
2: Yeah. So when I came to Bike Portland, it was just 2013. Portland was sort of sp- swinging into a big boom in home building. It was coming out of a four year like plateau, like almost no home building. So like there was, it was obvious that there was going to be some sort of a rent crisis. We already had a rent shortage and then the rents were starting to climb. And I was really interested in like, we should be solving this problem, but we should be solving it in a way that makes things more proximal. Like if you look at the greatest biking cities in Southeast Asia or Northern Europe, they're all full of these little close together homes, and that's the bedrock. People are not biking that many miles. They're just biking a lot because there are a lot of short trips. And the only way we create short trips is by building ADUs and attached homes and apartment buildings that are all close to jobs and everything else. So that was the case I was making, and I had a weekly column about that. And I got more and more obsessed with sort of that side of how to improve biking is by living in the places where biking is already good instead of having to spend all our wheels trying to make biking great in more and more places, which we should be doing both of.
0: This is off topic, but in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and I would imagine in Europe, electric motor scooters are becoming more common, right? That's not really taking off in the US. I mean, those little like ride-on hop-on scooters are really taking off, but not like the kind of ride-on scooters that give you longer distances. And they're electric what are your thoughts about electric scooters and their potential uh like are, are those as good as bikes or, or what are the differences that what are the ways in which like electric scooters are not provided serving the same role that bikes could play and how does that deal how do you think about that in terms of urban
2: form yeah, that's a good question. I don't really have a strong perspective. I guess by they're better than cars, they're worse than bikes, bikes are better than scooters, and worse than skateboards. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's like if if a if a tool is going to work, you should be able to use it. I'm pro transportation to the extent that it infringes on the other types of tr- of more efficient transportation, that's a problem. So like when those th- when like a motor vehicle is using a bike lane to the exclusion of it being comfortable for people to bike or scoot in, then that's a problem but i don't know exactly where you draw that line
0: yeah okay i've I've just been i i have an electric <clears throat> ride on scooter i love it and i'm just surprised that it, there's so few of them in the us wherein i would imagine they're that they're quite
2: popular now throughout east Asia. yeah i don't know why i mean it's taken over in northern europe too i think yeah it's yeah. not taken over but there's a lot of it anyway that was a side topic but i figured
0: you'd have some thoughts about that all right so What sources do you rely upon for staying abreast of the latest legislative policy discourse related to housing nationally?
2: My main filter is Twitter. So I use TweetDeck uh, as like a Twitter app that lets you like organize it all by, you know, most recent first. And uh, so it takes away some of the poisonous dunking fixation that the Twitter algorithm pushes you towards. So I highly endorse that. And then it lets you segregate by topic. So I can have a column for housing people and a column for transportation people. If, if anybody's interested, you can look at my housing list on Twitter. It's a public list. And I use that to I'm constantly update that. Twitter I bet proposal. you people
0: are interested in that because the fire hose is a real deal. I guess if you're not a reporter, it's like, it's just overwhelming. So I guess my, I guess my question is like following up on that. Is there a primary sort of like information source that Tweak Deck tends to push you towards, or is it individual DIY blogs out there across the, across the
2: internet? Yeah, I used to, so I once heard, you know, William Gibson, the, was it William? No, no, this was David Carr, the Times's old, New York Times' old media columnist. He said that like Twitter is like dipping a teacup into a glittering sea of information. And that's how he likes to enjoy it. And you don't worry about the sea as it flows by, you just dip your teacup and you enjoy that. Information. So, anyway, I like that metaphor.
0: It's apt, but does it, do, like, to my question, does, does oh, sorry. Is there, is, there a, is it, you're dodging the question, young man. Yeah. No, is there a primary news, like, source that you tend no. to be directed towards? No?
2: No, no. It's all it's, it's just a painstakingly building, figuring out who's smart on this stuff. All right. So,
0: you've recently written about a, a lot uh, more recently about state level zoning standards. What do you believe are some appropriate frameworks for when states attempt to reform local zoning statewide? It, it's evident to me based on my observation of the ADU market that the legislation that has occurred in Oregon and California has been extremely effective. Tell us your thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, so you're going to talk more about that this week, I know, in Oregon, but the both in Oregon and California and to some extent in a few other states, Washington, Connecticut, just recently, Utah, there have been laws that sort of set a basic standard for like, you can, you have, you have control over a lot of your zoning, but you're not allowed to ban the following options. And you know, the following options is a different list based on which state you are. In Oregon, we've had an accelerating pace of state level actions to set sort of pro housing standards at the local level, first with ADUs, Few years ago then followed up with middle housing duplexes triplexes fourplexes cottage clusters and then just in the last session just weeks ago one that allows lot division for middle housing which is as you were talking about yesterday with Jake hugely useful to get it actually built so we've also passed some like statewide level affordable housing mandates on a sweeping bipartisan basis that say that like you're allowed, you have to give extra space and unit count to projects that provide regulated affordability so I think that essentially makes that possible no matter the zone, which is also great for building an integrated city. So yeah, I think it, I'm really bullish about this trend of using the state to solve this problem that we created piecemeal city by city by city, but we create it everywhere. So like I've got, like can I go into like some of the game theory of it? Yeah. So uh, it seems to me that the, you know, like it's it's a prisoner's dilemma, right? So if you're familiar, like two people constantly lose if they're, Purely self interested, but if they can act together in concert, then they can win mutually compared to the content losing. And that's essentially, I think, how the vision for state zoning action works. You've got, so if you think about the, the current scenario, you've got, so if you look at all the cities around Puget Sound, for example, you've got a wide variety of different amounts of land zoned for attached housing and to the Seattle and Tukwila having about half of their land and a few cities, like richer cities, almost none of their land with very cities in the middle. If say Tukwila decided we are going to try and re-legalize cities, we're gonna say, You can live wherever you want in our city. You can build a home here. And we are going to also, that's going to create a tax windfall. And we'll use that property tax windfall to spend, to make sure that poor people can live here as well. And we'll build this wonderful situation. It would not solve the problem because Tukwila would also need every other city around Puget Sound to be doing something similar or else it's a drop in the housing bucket. Like it could not solve the problem on its own. And so as a result, if you're elected official in Tukwila, you're thinking, well, I could do this and I have an incentive to solve this regional housing shortage but I don't have the means to do it. So why would I ever try? Like, why would I go through the political cost of doing so? And at the state level, the politicians have not just the incentive, not just the motive, but they also have the opportunity. They have the means. So that's the puzzle that state level action solves.
0: Yeah. Interesting way to frame it. Thank you for putting it in those like game theory terms so in connecticut they recently passed adu legislation that allows cities to opt out maybe you can describe that a little bit for us before you answer the question i'm about to pose but presumably this legislation was a form of political compromise in in an idealistic you know adu legislative bill how do you feel about this particular legislative political tactic
2: yeah, so I don't know a ton about Connecticut. My impression is, and I've seen some of the advocates work on this, it is it, one of the most zoning segregated states in the country. There's very few, like either regulated affordable or market affordable homes in a lot of the state, especially where the jobs are rich. And the fight, the, the bill that was just passed. It allow, it legalizes ADUs up to I think a thousand square feet on almost any residential property. And but it says, and also does other good things like it removes like the, you know, it does on other, other more abstract, good things. But the, the key provisions on ADUs and parking, it says that if a city wants to opt out on the ADU legalization, it has to get a two thirds vote of its planning commission, followed by a two thirds vote of its legislative body, its town council or whatever, by a certain date, I think it's the first of 2023. And if they don't do it by then, then they lose their opportunity. So they have to like line it all up, but it also takes effect the first day of 2022. So unless cities are really Johnny on the spot on this, they're gonna be the ADUs are gonna be legal. The sky will not fall. Some people will hear about the fact that you can build them and get pissed off if they don't get to do it. So I think that is a clever way to structure a thing that lets people sort of think about how, oh, this won't, we can still stop this if we need to, but then like creates the conditions in which we have these local discussions which I think are sometimes the most important part of the thing is like forcing a discussion. And then sometimes housing will win in those discussions. Interesting. So I think it's clever. It's also like, obviously like if a city is built on economic segregation, as I think some municipalities in Connecticut are, they may indeed act on this and they may keep it out. And then like the game is if we want to solve that problem we get every other city who has already opted in to be like, no, no, we're taking that away from you now. You don't get to opt out anymore. And that'll be easier once every other city has opted in. So.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think you're, you're right about this notion that if you're going to get the gold level ADU regulations in place, the sky will not fall. And, and that, that that will effectively normalize lower barriers to ADU development. And so I think you're right that even if it's only in effect for one year, that's going to serve a big role in kind of catalyzing more aggressive or easier adoption of of higher level ADU standards in the future. So what are some suggestions that you would have for policymakers and advocates if they're considering pursuing statewide legislative approaches to promote ADUs and middle housing?
2: One thing that, so I've got all kinds of opinions. I'm mostly a language person. I'm not really a like a technician in any way. I'm a, more of a blogger. So that's where my expertise is, if anywhere. But I will say politically, some things we've noticed. In Oregon, the core of the campaign to get this stuff done was affordable housing developers. So I think affordable housing developers. And this is an insight by my former colleague, Madeline Kovacs, and Eli Spivak, who's been a Jaker, you've worked with on all this stuff, I think, and used to work in affordable housing himself. I think the formula they hit on was that the affordable housing developers have the expertise, they've got the incentive, they've got the sort of moral authority and credibility just to like try and get good zoning laws passed. In some cases, like they actually would prefer this to also apply to market rate because they want to work in the market rate system sometimes because it's less paperwork. They don't need any more constraints in their deeply regulated careers. And, and in some cases, the people who do this stuff, they just understand the need for a broader set of solutions to a housing shortage. So building on the sort of political support of affordable housing developers, and sort of going outward from there to a broad coalition of, you know, for developers, environmental groups, justice groups, all sorts of folks. We've been able to sort of communicate to elected officials that this is not a narrow issue. This is a very, very broad issue. And you may hear from narr- the narrow interests of the small minority of homeowners who are deeply opposed to this, but they are like not anywhere close in to the benefits that you will get from all these different spectrums, if you can allow more housing where people want it in urban areas. So that's been like, I think part of the key to it. We also, and I'm talking mostly about the democratic side, a really important thing, I think about Oregon and California and Washington. What we've seen is that a fair number of Republicans are also on this and in fact, in Oregon, and i think in california what we've needed we if we didn't have the republican votes on the bills they wouldn't have passed there were too many democrats from the suburbs in general that were voting against these bills even in these democratic supermajority states so like building a purely partisan argument which you could totally do for legalizing housing you know fighting economic segregation the uh, that's like an important part of it but if that's the only argument you're making if you're not also making a property rights people should get to the, do what they want sort of, you know, this is a market-based way to advance, you know, material benefits of many, many people. All that's also true. If you're not also making that, then you are less likely to succeed, I think. What legislative
0: bills are you tracking that excite you nationally? I should say state, state state-level bills, if any. Sure.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, very eager to see if California finally posts a win with the parking reform they proposed near transit I think uh, removing parking requirements uh, mandates near transit also I think it's SB9 in California is a middle housing legalization that allows duplexes on any lot and also a lot split so theoretically four units and also if you want to do a duplex you can split it so that's great or you know narrow house. Those are both great bills. And then in North Carolina, there's an exciting middle housing legalization bill that also includes AD and is similarly bipartisan. It would be really great to get something, I think, in the East Coast or Southeast that sort of is on the same lines because it's a whole different media universe there. So let's move away from state level legislation at the
0: moment and focus in on where, you know, for practical reasons, uh, a a lot of the kind of housing politics are going to play out at a local level. Is there any suggestions that you would have for local level policymakers and advocates if they're considering uh, trying to pursue better municipal regulations to promote ADUs and middle housing?
2: Yeah, I think Portland, it like so I was part of, I was like the several hours a week content person for Portland for Everyone, which was a campaign, is a, is a campaign, is a program of Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is an anti-sprawl sort of environmental organization. Former colleague Madeline was the political mastermind of that. And I think her, like she just spent a ton of time. She, she first won the funding and Thousand Friends committed their own funding to like, get her to meet thousands of people face-to-face and like build a gradual alliance of folks. One of her cool things that I've been trying to spread the word about was that when she was building the coalition, she didn't let any one sort of brand take over. So she didn't want it to be all affordable housing developers or all market rate housing developers or all environmental groups, she would say, I'm going to meter admission to this club and I'm going to say, we'll take in one of these, one of these, one of these. And when you do that, nobody feels excluded. Nobody feels like it's not their group. It's not for them. So if you have a really like bespoke coalition early on, you can build yourself a really long-term coalition, uh, hopefully a big tent, which is what you need to defeat the people who flip out about this stuff. Outside
0: of the city of Portland, where there's been this really effective mobilization of these interests to kind of get the residential inflow project passed, which we will focus on a lot this week and and today also. But what other particular local bills are you seeing outside of Portland? that Like other
2: municipal stuff? Yeah, municipal bills. Yeah, sure. The, I mean, I've been really impressed by the wave of California cities that are talking about middle housing legalization. I think it's like seven of them, including San Jose and San Diego and Oakland, like Sacramento. And I think that's caused by a combination of like this rhetorical battle happening in the national discourse and the state mandates that are saying you need to come up with locations for actual homes. And it turns out that like middle housing is one of the less controversial ways to increase the supply. So, okay. The, I I think 80 AD, seattle's adu legalization is sort of underrated like it goes up to a thousand square feet you can have two of them on any lot and it doesn't and there it doesn't apply the the floor area ratio cap doesn't apply so it's basically free space so there's a huge incentive to put in adus anytime a lot turns over and in, in fact the adu le- like production has gone way up so it's like it was a stealth triplex legalization in many ways. And I feel like it hasn't gotten the credit it deserves for that.
0: What are some federal rules or laws or other national policies that you and or Sightline are supporting to help bolster small infill housing?
2: I think uh, I'm not super optimistic about the payoff of federal efforts in this. Like, I think it's really hard to write a law that is gonna redound in the right ways down to the local stuff. If you, like you can lead a city to water, but you can't make it drink. The, but the and it's easier for states just because the conditions are more similar. I am sort of, I wish that there were more conversation at the federal level about incentivizing state legislation. Like I, right now, the federal things in the, the Biden administration has put out on this. They're great. It's like, here's some money to do a planning process. Okay, if you don't want to do a planning process, or is that going to get you to do a planning process, make it cheaper? And then there's a sort of proposal to tie, I think, some transportation, uh, like some, here's some additional transportation money you get if you reform your zoning in the correct direction, or you know, in a more inclusive direction. And there's some nuances there. I don't think either of those is a total game changer. I, like I said, I wish that the, the, there are only 50 states. There, are, I don't know. 20,000 cities. So like, it'd be much more efficient to incentivize the states to take action along the lines of Oregon's, for example. But the I do really like the idea of tying it specifically to transportation dollars, because that's something I think every, for my time as a suburban reporter, every local municipality desperately wants to add turn lanes, whether or not that's good, that's going to get their attention if they aren't getting or, or if they could get Federal money for that, so that's better than most ways to incentivize this stuff at the federal level, I think. Uh, then there's also like the affordable, affordable, or oh, sorry, affirmatively furthering fair housing, which looks more specifically at affordable housing and where how that well that is distributed, and as well as with the the underlying zoning. And that is a process we could be using a lot more than we are. I'm not sure it's ever going to scale up. Like, is it essentially a punitive way to get cities to do stuff, which is effective when it works but like it needs to be applied a lot before cities actually change their behavior instead of just asking for apology rather than
0: i'm gonna briefly frame four different legislative things that are occurring in portland and oregon for everybody's benefit so there's residential infill project house bill 2001 senate bill 458 and the sheltered housing continuum project all of which are relevant to this discourse and I you know, my perspective is that these have been really excellent gold level standards, so I think they're worth emulating. Residential info project allows for middle housing including two EDUs in the city of Portland. House Bill two thousand one enables middle housing in every city in Oregon. A Senate Bill four fifty eight takes House Bill two thousand one and says if you build middle housing on a lot under this new House Bill two thousand one, you can partition these lots and to create smaller fee simple lots and the shelter housing continuum project among other things allows for tiny homes on wheels and RVs to be used as housing on residential properties in the city of Portland. So these are all pretty incredible innovations within the housing zoning space um, in Portland and Oregon. Could you give some commentary on these four efforts that are happening and, and what, you know, lessons they have
2: for other jurisdictions and states? Yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it all. It's like, it's all going to come into effect. None of it's come to effect yet, I think, or very small parts of it have. So like... August first is going to be a pretty sweet day. My, the Portland Labor's Welcome, which is the local advocacy grassroots group I'm part of, is going to have a party to celebrate it all coming into effect on August first. If you're in Portland, you should check it out. The yeah, I think Cole, you were you, you you turned me on to how amazing the shelter to housing proposal is on like homes on wheels, just as a real like revolutionary way to cut costs. And I think like. Ultimately, like we need to set a basic expectation for like the quality of housing we declare to be adequate, but we're not going to achieve that quality by, you know, with an unfunded mandate on poor people, which is basically how we've been doing it. And so like, I think it really affects, we should be giving poor people money and we should be letting poor people build structures that don't hurt other people and keep them safe so i think sheltered housing moves us in that direction i'd love to get your take on that but that's one of the most exciting things to me is the decriminalization of you know homes on wheels the i would love to follow that up with further action ideally at the federal level to give everybody cash that's my own separate hobby horse but yeah yeah and on the residential infill project we remove parking mandates from Virtually all of the city. So, all of of residential Portland is essentially parking is optional now, and almost all commercial uses as well. So, that will make us one of a handful of cities that has done this recently San Francisco, Minneapolis, Hartford, Buffalo, South Bend, and soon mostly. So, that is just a huge like obstacle at the root of so many of these things. Like, you can't start thinking about legalizing, you know cottage cluster like low super low cost cottage clusters unless you've also removed the mandate to have a parking space with each one which is like so irrelevant to the purpose of the dwelling so yeah anyway i think it's that's really great too in addition to the legalizing plexes allowing plexes to lots to be subdivided which solves a lot of the financing problem because you can just carve something off of a lot and get a mortgage for it and you know sell it so that's that's a great way to lower the cost barriers to home ownership, And I'm excited about that too. All right.
0: Well, <clears throat> we're, we're both clearly in awe of what is happening. So I guess, I guess that, and, and, and for everybody's benefit, you know, tomorrow and the, the next day are going to be, are going to be focusing on hospital or residential infill project and hospital 2001 with the kind of the lead states people for those, those
2: top topics. So um, can I break in on that? I, I realized I didn't credit Tina Kotek, the single most important person on the state action stuff. She's the Speaker of the Oregon House. She's a former resident of a fourplex. She's a homeowner in a gentrifying neighborhood. She has seen this costs and benefits of Oregon's housing shortage through her life, and decided she was going to make this happen, and she has. And like, I give amazing credit to her work on this. So, yeah. I mean, that's a really
0: that's a really important point, isn't it? That it, in this case, you know, she is the person who is the She's like the lead house or the speaker of the house, right? And she's one person and she's not famous, but she is essentially, you could, you could more or less say she's responsible for enabling House Bill 2001, which is going to allow for middle housing statewide in every city in Oregon. One person who isn't famous doing right. that. So one conversation with that one person could do that in a different state. One effective conversation.
2: She would... Uh, yes, they would need to be as motivated as, and as talented as she is, but yeah.
0: Over the years, you've written many pieces about controversial topics, such as infill housing for advocates of infill housing. Can you offer some communication and framework approaches that you have found to be helpful when communicating about this topic?
2: Sure. And I, is there like an aftermatter thing where we can, I should drop some links. I want to drop a link to our messaging memo. So my colleague Anna and I wrote a, a sort of, gathered our advice about how to talk about this stuff in like ways that don't inflame people don't trigger narratives of panic and so on some of my key tips are n- i never ever ever use the word density or almost never it's all that that so think about like density is what things look like from a city perspective but people individ- experience politics from their own perspective so talk about the benefit to the individual which is proximity and or location choice so getting to live where you want and getting to live near the stuff you want. Those are the ways, that's what that's what density looks like at the individual level. And those are the benefits of density. There are downsides of density too, but we're talking about the benefits. Let's talk about the benefits. And the, so that, that's a key one. Always, always, always show pictures of the stuff you're trying to legalize. We are both modeling that now, I guess. Ideally also, you know, the human people who are benefiting from the homes you're trying to legalize. And, you know, there are, there are these examples, 10% or so, of almost every city in the country is already in units of two to four or buildings of two to four units. So like something like 10% of the housing supply in most cities across the country are like this. The, a lot of it was built before these housing types were banned because it's a really cheap, effective way to build a home is to share a lot and share a wall and so on. And uh, so it was done before we made it illegal in the mid 20th century. You can use examples like this one behind me to say, no, it doesn't, it's not terrible. It's actually, actually it's good. Like this is a way to help people at the middle income live in a newly built home or, you know, or wherever in an older home at a lower price. So using pictures of that is great. Talking about history is great. Talking about your community's specific history. So in Oregon, in Portland, we talked about 1959. That was the year that Portland banned middle housing from most of the city. Eli, my neighbor, and colleague, Collaborator, your collaborator, previous interviewer here, interviewee here, dug that year up. It's been hugely useful to know that year to be able to cite it. It communicates the context here, which was like Brown versus Board of Education just passed, uh, restrictive covenants were just banned by the Supreme Court, the like suburbanization was accelerating and we were making a bunch of, in my opinion, bad decisions about the future of cities at that point. This was part of that. It took a long time for the costs to be visible, but we have now seen the costs are visible. And also it was a decision that like, it wasn't like handed down on the tablets. It was like our actual grandparents were like part of making this decision and they grew up in the type of neighborhoods that we're trying to re-legalize. So like it was a experiment. It has failed in various ways. It's not something that's fundamental about cities to make it illegal to build small homes, attached homes, whatever. Do you think that term that you've
0: used quite a bit, regal- re-legalization is an effective term?
2: Not everybody likes it. I like it. I just feel like it captures the history to say re-legalize. It sort of confuses people. And it captures the fact that I think, I think, I think narratives of like collapse are seductive to us of like, we live in a post, you know, what is it? A post-lapsarian environment. And so if we can only regain that pre-lapsarian virtue, then we would be good. Anyway, so like that's invalid. There are also lots of terrible things about the years before 1959. But the, I think the sort of the narrative that we've lost something about cities I think is both true and powerful.
0: You've alluded to just now how 10% 10% of, you know, roughly 10% of a lot of cities are existing middle housing. How do you know that to be true? And like, in ge- more in general, what what are the best data sources for you when you're attempting to research these zoning, ho- housing composition, empty bedroom questions, and other oddball stuff that you managed to uncover that I don't see other people write about?
2: There, there is so much damn stuff in the American Community Survey. So there's the American Housing Survey has some of this stuff. And the American Community Survey is the annual census thing, which... Like, I don't know if you if anybody is following this stuff, there's some proposal to gut it on bogus privacy reasons and claim that we shouldn't be releasing any of this data that would, anyway, if you can take action on that, you should, but the American Community Survey is such an invaluable way to craft arguments about the truth. So yeah, that's, that's where the 10% comes from. That's where the empty bedroom stuff comes from. There's also the publicly, what is it? Public use micro sample data from the census, which allows you to mix your own cross tabs from the ACS data. And so you can look at things like income and auto ownership or whatever you want to do. I think you're probably
0: right, but it's all easier said than done. Having tried to deal with census data myself, it is unwieldy and difficult to use. Yeah. So you have to be a pretty technical person to to manage that kind of data set and then analyze it.
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to use the out-of-the-box census tools, which they keep changing, of course, every few years. So you have to relearn it. But honestly, I think it's not terrible. And I don't think... Anybody who knows how to use a spreadsheet would be confused by the stuff if they spend some time with it. It's just figuring out what the data is, like reading the list of tables, figuring out what they mean. I, I only know the corners of it that are housing and transportation, but like over the last 15 years, I've learned those pretty well.
0: So spend 15 years and you can get it. Right.
2: Exactly. No problem. <laughs> What's but special- no, 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 I mean, but it was just, it, it was the work of a few weeks when I was in 2005, getting to know, oh Jesus, there's all this data here. And then I wrote all, a bunch of newspaper stories about it. And, you know, and I've been doing that since. What
0: places do you look for internationally in terms of inspiration for housing and transportation policies?
2: I, I think my go-to thing about that, when people ask for what's the best example of this working, it's our own past. Like I said, like our own past wasn't great in every way, but like the, so Portland grew vastly faster in the first decade of the 20th century than it ever has since. And it was like this huge boom. Many, many, many people were moving to the city and it it is not remembered as an economic catastrophe. It's remembered as a boom and like an emergence of Portland onto this national scene. How is it that, like, if you imagine relatively fast, Mike, in bound migration decade, like we've had in, in Portland in the last 10 years and other cities. And it's had this huge economic cost. It's like, been it remembered as like, how could we possibly deal with something that was like even faster than this? And the reason is that you could build homes. Like we weren't engaged in a dog-eat-dog battle for the limited number of homes that exist. We weren't like restricting more than half the city from allowing additional homes. So it was through that process that we created every city in the world was like a city had like Procter meets Gamble that's what cities are for they're both immigrants they have a good idea using how like new ways to make soap and then Cincinnati exists like and like we should be allowing Cincinnati to exist when Procter and Gamble have a good idea and a bunch of other people kind of to move in and help with it so like that's what's trying they're trying to do like San Jose has been trying to have one of those miracle decades For the last 20 years, and the catastrophe that we've seen in the Bay Area has been the result of that, the the humanitarian catastrophe created by that prosperity, when it could be a shared prosperity if we would allow more homes to exist, in my opinion.
0: You've been involved in Portland Neighbors Welcome and its predecessor, Portland for everyone which are kind of nonprofit coalitions can you ser- share some of the successes of what this group has done in for the city of portland and would you recommend this type of advocacy approach elsewhere what does it take to get this type of political advocacy and initiative going you've already alluded to some of this but i want you to go into a little bit more sure. detail sure
2: so portland neighbors welcome it's i mean We are like YIMBY adjacent. I think we share a lot of like characteristics that people associate with YIMBY movements, if that's the term people know. But we have tried to, first of all, avoid like the sort of polarizing word YIMBY and also to explicitly build into our work, tenant advocacy. And I think that's where our folks are mostly motivated is like, we are interested in affordability and stability both for people who live in Portland now and for people who want to live in Portland in the future. So like that second part is something that our, our friends and the other tenant advocacy groups acknowledge the importance of, but aren't super focused on because they're trying to prioritize the people here now. Totally legit, but we are trying to be like, we are for tenant rights now and we're for tenant rights in the future and tenants will have better rights if we can build enough homes over the long term. And I think the other sort of housing advocacy groups that we interact with in Portland respect that perspective it is totally cool to be trying to help tenants in ways that will pay off in 2030 like that's also important but like as long as we are sort of real about the fact that like you know allowing adus now isn't going to materialize into actual adus for another year or two and isn't going to materialize into larger price increases for a year or two after that and then or dec- price decreases for a year or two after that and even then like is not a solution for people who don't have enough income to support the cost of depreciating housing like it's a partial solution it is a Important piece of the recipe, but is not the entire recipe. So I think there's a ton of like tension on the left, broadly speaking, basically around the fact that none of this is a complete solution. And like we don't always have to be like in a circular firing squad saying, You're not completely solving the problem. No, you're not completely solving the problem. Like, no, that's right neither of us is completely solving a problem. We should be working on these issues. We should be working in concert and friendly with each other and acknowledging the limitations of our proposed policies. So it's more complicated than that, but like that's the sort of spirit that Portland Neighbors Welcome has tried to bring to it. I think it's been effective thanks largely to the, the this was a, a concept of Madeline's from years ago, it's been executed by uh, her for a while and others since then that I think has, has really been really important to getting stuff done in Portland.
0: Well, I, and just to give a little bit of granular, you know, observation to this, that, you know, at the hearings for the residential infill project, it would be accurate to say that the advocacy pro these new middle housing and you know, two ADU proposals vastly exceeded the number of and testimonials. Would you say eight that to
2: one? Eight, eight to one. Eight to one. Eight pretty, to one. pretty fantastic, yeah
0: that's powerful and i think that's largely attributable to the coalition that you were you know helping with the portland neighbors welcome coalition so, so, so I, I, I i think from my vantage that's like maybe the most uh, impactful you know thing that i observed in that legislative local legislative process was just like the dwarfing of commentary and not to mention the sophistication of the commentary that was coming out as a result of the coordination of the
2: Portland neighbor as well I don't I agree with that I don't want to discount all the work inside the city as well so like it was we had like I think a really enlightened staff support on this process that got better and better as people got more information and the political folks I've got a I did I spent like two months doing a history of how this happened in Portland and talking to all these people who had been involved in it along the way it's going to come out this summer So I'll share with you when it does. But like, I was just, I learned a bunch of stuff about the many people who saved this project from death over the course of five years. And some of whom I had never realized were deeply involved in it. So, yeah.
0: Is this a a blog post or a book or?
2: Uh, It's a long blog post. It was like an article for the Lincoln Institute, but we're going to republish it. Great.
0: I I can't wait to read it.
1: That wraps up the interview portion of this episode of the ADU Hour. As a reminder, these episodes are the edited audio version of interviews that we conducted via a webinar series. Good news, you can access the full video series via Cole's website, buildinganadu.com. Now, for the second half of the show, I curate questions from the audience that gives our guests the opportunity to dive deeper into a topic or address new ideas and questions.
0: I'm just going to ask you one question. Um question before we get into the questions from, from the attendees. So as a steward of infill housing, what impact do you want your work to have on the real estate
2: industry at large? I think my sort of key value is location choice and like people should get to live where they want, especially in urban areas, I think. So like thinking about this sustainability side of this, this is a phrase from Peyton Chung in Washington, D.C., Millions of Americans want to spend billions of their own dollars to reduce their carbon pre- footprints. We just need to let them do it. So, like, unlike all the other things we're doing to try and prevent economic or economic and environmental catastrophe of cl- climate change, people don't have to suffer. In fact, this makes people's lives better by letting them do what they want. So, like, we should definitely, definitely do this. There's not a like significant economic trade-off here. So, anyway, all we have to do let people live where they want that is great in many different ways sustainability is one of them
0: yeah kelsey what you, you're 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 quite a bike bicyclist yourself and a real estate professional what are your what are your thoughts about that
1: i agree i i've lived only in places where i can cycle i am not interested in living anywhere where i would have to own a car or drive a car. And. So I think that goes to, like, I want to. I want to decrease my carbon footprint by not driving. And I want to, and therefore I choose where I live because of that. And I um, and I think it's huge. And I, I want to see housing developed in a way where that doesn't prioritize a vehicle and, and owning a vehicle and using a vehicle. And the way we're developing now requires that people move farther away from the city centers that they want to be a part of and want to, and the amenities that they want close by. it just been a pretty terrible trickle effect.
2: Can I throw in one? I, I should have brought this up, talking about bikes. Cole, you were personally a reason that Portland Neighbors Welcome exists because you started going on these bike tours and right actually writing down the email list, right? Of the people, like you collected people's emails on these bike tours of small homes in Portland? Maybe, yeah, probably. That's what Eli said anyway. And that was the beginning of the mailing list that became Portland for everyone's key list. And then that was the beginning of the network that became Portland Neighbors Welcome. So you are a parent of all this stuff if you hadn't been more organized than other bike tour people.
0: Wow, all right. Who, who knew? I didn't yeah. know. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> all right, so Kelsey, let's take some questions from attendees. Thanks.
1: Of course, yeah So we'll start with Tim's. For both of you, what reforms would you, what mm-hmm, what port reforms do you think could and should be pursued within the second part of the Portland Residential Info Project, now beginning which is which is required to bring Portland into compliance with House Bill Two
0: Thousand One? I'll I'll answer first, which is I mean House Bill Two Thousand One is going to compel the city of Portland to to do some uh, cleanup of its current local zoning reform such that it'll comply with this statewide mandate. But what what it could do that will go above and beyond what the statewide mandate would require, which is going to require most city, most most properties to allow for cottage cluster housing would be to allow for that cottage cluster housing to allow for other forms of housing that the statewide bill does not require. The statewide bill says you must allow for detached accessory dwellings, essentially on a lot of most residential properties, which by the way, now can be fee simple partitions. So sold off separately. So these are going to be like AU sized cottages, right? But uh, what the city of Portland could do is go above and beyond that and allow for those uh, fee simple partitionable lots to be allow for tiny homes on wheels. So cluster or some iteration of this, like some iteration of allowing for multiple mobile dwellings on a residential property. I think there is, I, I know this, it, it's it's kind of, it, it seems a little bit fantasy-like for lack of a better term to, to, to have this like cluster of tiny homes on wheels, but having, you know, it been exposed to thousands, tens of thousands of people who are staying in tiny homes on wheels. I cannot tell you how often I hear the commentary of people who say, I just want to live in a a village of tiny homes. I get that comment all the time, like several times a week. I would say. So I know that there's a lot of interest in that for whatever reason. And I think from a market perspective, there's actually a huge marketing or market opportunity that mobile dwellings could foster. The regulations to embody that are a little bit different and challenging for a variety of ways. But, but I think that there's a lot of potential there. And so the city of Portland could potentially go that way under the residential infill project too.
2: Michael? I don't have a lot to add to that. One of the key things that is going to do is expand to the hillier, richer parts of Portland that were not included in the previous version. So that's like another benefit of state action is that the conveniently carved out parts of the city are no longer going to be conveniently carved out. I uh, so I'm interested to see how the city builds in the sort of deeper affordability, regulated affordability side of that. So there's a part of the political Compromise and policy outcome for the first residential infill project was we legalized up to six units if half of them or half or more were regulated affordable, which is awesome. Like, and I think is as important as anything else here perhaps, but the, I'm eager to see how the math is going to work for the most exclusive areas for that side of things.
1: Many people are curious, Michael, what your Twitter handle is so we can follow you.
2: Sorry, it's andersem. A-N-D-E-R-S-E-M. And we'll
0: post that in the uh, PowerPoint here in one minute.
1: Oh, it is on there, great. So there are a few kind of, there's a few questions to be, I think your conversation was very thorough in answering exactly how you both have gotten really involved in the process of uh, advocating for missing middle housing, middle housing and uh, smaller dwelling so that but we can just i'll just ask some more pointed questions can you provide any specific recommendations on getting involved in local policy making any local groups local advocacy groups that you suggest?
0: I, i'm going to go back to that last set of questions that i posed to michael which are I, I feel like this uh, notion of having a coalition whether it's you know the casita coalition a statewide coalition like that or a more local iteration of that in a small city, that kind of coalition that Portland Neighbors Welcome represents um, has been so effective. So there's NIMBY chapters and other areas and you can tie into those, but I think
2: I think starting one- NIMBY uh, chapters. You can also tie into a NIMBY chapter if you want. Sorry, NIMBY mm-hmm. chapters. Oh, I thought you said NIMBY. I probably- don't <laughs> I,
1: I heard NIMBY too.
2: That I, I didn't mean, <laughs> don't, that. I mean Right. Don't you tie can into infiltrate them? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I, I feel like coalition building is is honestly well, that that gets that it ties in affordable housing advocates as well as you know for for profit developers and policy long set architects and designers and builders and green builders is a pretty important attribute to getting the kind of momentum and strategy together that you need to to pass this type of legislative reform.
1: It's 10.02, I have kind of an interesting question that came from John. How much control does a local HOA architectural re- review committee have in reviewing an ADU application?
2: All you call.
0: Well, it depends on which state you're in, right? Because in California, ADUs are allowed on in all hoas by right and in oregon they're only they're not allowed in hoas by right under state law except if the hoa was formed after the passage of House Bill 2001 so it's going to be a state-by-state state matter but at that you know i don't think there's been a lot of testing legally legal testing of 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 this statewide requirement that adus must be allowed in hoas in california yet so it'll be i think a matter of seeing how um Those rules are tested and then I don't know exactly the procedures and processes for HOAs reviewing new applications will proceed. I, I can't really speak to that.
1: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the ADU Hour. New episodes will be released weekly.
0: The ADU Hour audio podcast series includes some of the interviews that were part of the live show. The unedited full-length version of all of the episodes is now available in video format for a one-time purchase price of $39 on buildinganadu.com. You can register for the ADU Hour series to gain immediate and indefinite access to all new and old shows. You can also find ADU courses for homeowners, real estate professionals, sign up for my email newsletter, which includes content and announcements, and pick up a copy of the book Backdoor Revolution while you're there. Go to buildinganadu.com to learn more.